Hey, Greg, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm amazing. Thank you so much for just taking some time out for us. Like, it means a lot to us. Yeah, my pleasure. I want to, I usually start us off, like all the guests that we have, from the earliest context of their life, like who they are, like what exactly has happened with them, however, you know, how did we become whoever we are today? Sure. So give us some, some earliest context of your life. Like, you know, how did you become the Greg Larkin that we are hosting today? Yeah, so I, I grew up in New York City in Queens um, in the 1980s when New York was a little bit nasty. Uh, it was not the hipster capital. Um, yeah, so I get really nostalgic. I still live in Brooklyn. New York is my home. Okay. I am a New Yorker through and through. My my background is um, is a little weird. I, I, I have uh, I'm definitely what I'm a, I'm an unconventional. I don't fit in any particular bucket. What I mean by that is, um, I accidentally stumbled into Wall Street. You know, I began my career um, at an investment research startup. Um, I had a degree in e- economics. Um, I thought I was going to become an, like a development economist uh, about, you know, figuring out how to uh, do business in emerging market economies and make investments in emerging markets. Um, I ac- just kind of by accident. Uh, I got a job in, a, in an investment research startup called InnoVest that asked me to uh, analyze banks. And um, I kind of eventually became the head of product there. Um, and then we got acquired. And what's interesting okay. about that is we got acquired by MSCI, a division of Morgan Stanley. So I kind of went from this being this entrepreneur, startup guy, very young, uh, kind of punk rock, very irreverent, and was like pulled into not just finance, but like the heart of Wall Street and 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 stayed there for a while. So kind of by mistake, I wound up becoming um, a wall, like a, a, an executive on Wall Street. And I did okay, but I was culturally a complete freak. No one, everyone there had been planning to be there their entire life. You know, there was no plan B. This was the only thing they wanted to do. This is everything they had aspired for. And for me, I'm just like, I, I don't, I don't fit in. This is, this place was not designed for me. Um, and so I left and became when 2015, I was, I left my job as the head of innovation at Bloomberg and went back to entrepreneurship again. And that was also really weird because being a 40 year old entrepreneur is awkward because most entrepreneur communities are not built for people that age. They're built for people in their twenties. Um, so like, kind of going back to my entrepreneur roots, you know, 15 years after I was there the first time, I'm like, oh, wait, like I have kids, I have a mortgage. Uh, the problems I get excited about now are very different than the ones that excited me, you know, when I was 26. Um, so it was sort of an awkward fit in both, in both worlds. And I, I've since learned to accept that as a superpower but at the time it felt like a big deficit wow what was it what was it exactly like working at wall street like what's the inside looks like and like 
so so here's here's some 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 word of a context so i've met two types of people type one is and then again this is like not a very great classification it's just a generic thing type one are the people who hate wall street like they think that's like like that's not a place where you to just go like do whatever you want to do in your life just don't go there type two of the people are like they're doing exactly like you said they're planning to spend their whole lives in wall street right so these are like two types of people so what exactly is it about this industry corporate wall street whatever you want to call that in finance that people are so like they they either love it they either hate it so what exactly is like that from the inside what is it like on the inside um yeah so it's like anything else in this world if you look for the stereotype you will find it so on one hand um you will find some of the most alpha type a dominating everything as a zero sum game it's always about you being the winner and someone else losing if you look for it you will see it the stereotype of wall street is not something that was just conjured out of thin air um that's very real and um but what's interesting as well is that as markets became more automated and technology became more important in capital markets a very different type of person also came into wall street then and even over the like in the beginning of my time on wall street versus the end of my time on wall street it shifted so i'll give you a really cool example of this um when i began working at bloomberg there was a policy and it was official which was once you leave here you're dead to us meaning they would never hire someone again if you left what okay <laughs> what and that was very much a product of just old wall street you know no you don't dump me i dump you you know it's very ego and a lot of like pretty aggressive personalities that would rise into positions of leadership by the time i quit that job in 2015 they had to very quietly reverse the policy because they were running out of engineers it used to when when i began they could pay an engineer more if you were a really good developer or a really good data scientist or very good at ai they would pay you more than anyone else by the time i left google's campus is literally 30 blocks away Amazon's building a pretty big presence. Instagram was headquartered in New York at that time. LinkedIn is based is running out of the Empire State Building. So suddenly you have a war for tech talent on your hands, a bidding war. Yeah. And very mm-hmm. quietly they didn't make any fanfare about it, but it kind of became understood that they had to relax that policy. If you left and you were a tech genius, you could probably come back. Don't tell anyone. you know um so it's really the reason i say that is because one of the things that happened as technology became more important in finance and and in capital markets you had really weird people who were never 20 years ago 10 years ago would have never made not only would they not have worked in finance um but they certainly would never have made it to a position of executive leadership um and like i i don't know uh, the first company that i worked for 
I remember when they when we moved into the office of the acquirer, Risk Metrics is the name of the company, and um, there was a guy who looked like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. He had like white hair, <laughs> you know. Okay. He had like long white hair. He was wearing like a beat up T shirt, and he was he was sitting there with like a magnifying glass and a brush and and like a, a set of tweezers, and he was like cut doing something and i asked someone i'm like who's that guy who looks like gandalf and what's he doing and the answer was uh he's doing rice calligraphy and he's our cto the cto okay the chief technology okay. officer of risk metrics one of the most successful publicly traded finance companies in the history of the wall street he was this like very weird out there kind of psychedelic yeah. dude with long gray hair dressed like jeans and a t-shirt and when he needed to clear his head he would paint japanese characters on a grain of rice just to like so you had things like you know yes you had these like testosterone sweaty alpha dudes but you also had people with a degree in physics. You also had people who literally were just technological puzzle solvers and who accidentally wound up working on Wall Street. And, 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 and during my time there, there was this sort of shift in the cultural balance of power between the technologists and the meatheads, you know? Um, um, it was, I, I was, and I was right in the middle of it, and I, I hated being in the middle of that balance of power shift. But on the outside, it's kind of fascinating, and and many of those people are still a really wonderful part of my life. How did you survive that? Because you know, uh, it's just like you know, a kid going to the school that he hated, students in the class that he hated, teachers that he hated, still managed to climb up the ladder like very far away, very well done. But like, how did you survive all of that? And how, you know, how much of a emotional turmoil that was for you? Like, you know, what was the mental side effect of all of that? Because, you know, you're just like going to an environment where you, like you hated being in that environment every day, but you still stayed there. So, uh, so I didn't hate it every day. I'll tell you what my best days were. Okay. On a good day, I was able to just do my job. Just do my job. I didn't have to worry about the politics of it. And when I was able to just do my job, I got to solve things that were just fascinating. For example, can we look at a geopolitical conflict anywhere in the world and evaluate what stocks it was likely to affect? The minute it starts to break out, not at retroactively, can like if 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 yep. if if the conflict between India and Pakistan were to flare up, could we be in a position to say, great, here are all the mines around there like nickel platinum etc these are all the mining companies around there they're gonna get affected can we based on all the historical precedents of things like this occurring anticipate what the likely movement of those stocks and commodity prices is going to be based on historical movement that's that's an i mean that's an incredibly cool puzzle to solve yeah. Um, yeah. If there's a piece of legislation that drops in the United States Congress, just based on who sponsored the bill, just based on 
what lobbyists were behind it. Can we identify which stocks are likely to be affected by it and whether it's going to be positive, negative, or neutral? And so I got to build some incredibly cool, interesting, impactful, very creative analytical tools that made sense of just unbelievable levels of complexity and just narrowed it down to this one like point and click like yes buy this sell this stay put don't do anything right now and so doing that and some of the people who would emerge who were just fascinated by it and supportive of it and encouraged me to keep going and to build my tribe and and the sort of allies I met along the way and some of the technologists I met along the way, but also um, the the counterintuitive executives. So people who have a reputation of being, I can name them, it's a very high praise for me. Like Norm Perlstein is a guy who comes to mind. He was, uh, I don't really, I don't remember what his title was. He was one of like the top 10 most senior people at Bloomberg. Um, And he also at a certain point was, I think, the executive editor of the Wall Street Journal. And Norm was just like pulled up a chair at my desk one day. He's like, hey, I hear you're working on something cool. I'm like, "Uh, hi, Norm. I can't believe you're talking to me. (laughs) You know, and he's like eating a sandwich. And he was like, walk me through it. And I was able to take him through my my risk products and 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 um you know was he was probably i don't know i'm gonna guess he was 65 or so at the time and it, it was just it, what was awesome about it is like it was really clear that he wished he had my job you know this very senior very wealthy very like famous yeah infamous in some regards you know executive and it was just really clear that he wished he could do what i was doing he misses that part of like it was he was rediscovering his youth just by seeing me invent stuff. And so that was one way of surviving. Was like there's people in that world who are incredibly humble and curious and miss get to a level of seniority and and really they don't want it anymore. What they prefer to be doing is going back into the trenches and building stuff that makes a dent in the universe. Um and when you could find them and build an alliance with them, you could make incredible things come to life. It was very hard to fight them. You know, they were very, it was not the norm. Most of the leaders had didn't care about making a dent in the universe. Most of them were motivated by money and power and nothing else. Um, and so at, at a certain point, I had to just understand things about myself compared to everyone else like i personally was motivated to find my tribe change the world and make a dent in the universe and finally to have money power and recognition and not because money power and recognition wasn't important to me but just because it was dependent on those other two things being satisfied and I think once I like reconciled, like my hierarchy of needs was not Wall Street's hierarchy of needs. Some people were, but not most people. I I knew I had to go. I had to quit. Like I couldn't sustain it anymore. Once I knew that about myself, I was like, all right, well, 
that's not something that this place was built for. You're not the leader this place was built around. And, um, and so I left and I quit my job. And um, that was really hard. Um, I could imagine. But it was the right thing to do. And, and some of the people I know from that time in my life are great, great friends. Okay. You mentioned something, you know, we were doing some research and funny that you, you put it down on, on your LinkedIn, actually. So we were hoping that maybe there's some article down there or something like that, but you actually made it very obvious <clears throat> and hard to miss out on. It's, say something around, you know, you were building something at Bloom, Bloomberg and then you specifically mentioned in any other organization, that thing could have been built like 5x faster, you know, had generated like 10x more revenue. So, um, um, talk to me, like, why do you think so? Like, because generally, when you think about big companies, uh, and, you know, I had a couple of questions on, on that because, you know, you've been in that executive leadership, at, you know, uh, corporate America, or, you know, that's, that's how I would like to call that. Normally, you would think that they have billions of dollars. So innovation shouldn't be a problem for them. Taking up a new initiative shouldn't be a problem for big companies, like, because they have that much amount of cash, like, they can, they shouldn't be, like, shying away from that. But you also mentioned that, you know, uh, intentionally or unintentionally, things were like slowed down, like considerably slowed down. Like, wh why do you think so? That is so. Well, so uh, let, let me begin, first of all, by not letting myself off the hook. And I think a lot of people okay. who try and fail at innovation do a very bad job of, of acknowledging what made them a bad innovator. Um, so let me first, okay. like, let me not buy into my own bullshit, first of all. Um, okay. Someone who's great at innovation and someone is not necessarily the person who builds the most innovative products inside of a huge company. Um, and at that time, um, let me back that up a second more. Every company in the world, there is constant tension between preservationists on one hand, people who want things to stay the same, disruptors who want things to change. Constant. They're going back and forth with one another all the time. And ostensibly, it's because one thinks the other, like, sometimes it's rational. It's that argument is about the right risk and reward. Um, very often, and the thing that people don't like to talk about is that it's also about ego. Who's supposed to be in charge here? Um, if you innovate, okay. does that mean that I'm not worthy of the power that I've accumulated? Are you challenging me? You know, self-preservation and self-promotion are powerful instincts in any organization. And no one should ever underestimate how obstructionist someone might become when they feel like their ability to their their ability to be a, a self preservationist or a self promoter is, is blocked or, or threatened. Um, I very naively hoped at the time that peop, everyone was as excited about innovating as I was. You know, I I just did. I just assumed that everyone was in it to win it that their intentions were pure. That was never true. Um, some people were, but that's not the gravitational, you know, norm of the organization. Um, and 
really what I came to appreciate was that the the best innovators and people who are the best transformationists inside of a large organization has nothing to do with strategy and execution or their ability to put billions of dollars to work. It's can you recognize the obstructionist defense and can you call the right play to get past it? That's it. The, 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 the product launch, the product turnaround, the business turnaround is the thing that happens after that. And if it gets talked about in Fast Company or in the Wall Street Journal, no, no one's like, they tend to play the ribbon cutting ceremony. They don't go back to the part where there was a huge civil war and innovation won. Um, and I was part of that civil war and I, I didn't win, you know, and, and I was, I was not a good soldier in it. Um, and so I, I don't want to let myself off the hook. I was a flawed person to be trying to win the fight that I was in. I didn't even know I was in the fight. Um, I'm a little older and I've been through some shit and I see it now more clearly than I did before. Like there are five obstructionists. And if you're going to go and try to build something new or change something old inside of a large company, you need to know who they are. You're going to encounter them. There's the skeptics, the cops, the traditionalist, the territorialist, and the capitalist. Five. And okay. you're going to be hit maybe by all of them all at once, but you're going to be, you're, you're always going to encounter them. And you always need to understand how you're going to, how to anticipate them and how to, what's the right play to call when you encounter them. And I know that now I did not have that toolkit at the time. I only wound up developing mm -hmm. it after Bloomberg when I had some time to think and be like, man, I built some stuff there that would have made a lot of people a lot of money and, and, and they killed it. Why? Yeah. <clears throat> and, um, and now I know why. Why? Because I didn't know how to be an anti-obstructionist. I did. But you do now. Yeah, I do now. Absolutely. Okay. I do now. I, not that time, right? No. I got my ass kicked enough to figure it out. Okay. <laughs> okay. What are you doing today? And why are you doing today? Whatever you're doing today. Um, so I, uh, today I run a company called Pugs and Pinstripes. It is a vetted community of corporate executive punks and people who left corporate leadership to launch new ventures. And uh, okay. there's only 200 members. We only allow 25 new members to join every quarter. And um, why am I doing it? When I was a corporate executive at, in, in finance, and even, even after I left finance, I was doing work with Google and PwC the community that was sort of readily available was the right demographic, but never the right psychographic. What do I mean by that? Um, I would get sent to things like the Deloitte, you know, digital innovation summit or, or something like that, where it was a bunch of other like innovation executives or, or CIOs or what have you across the fortune 1000. And, it was very much focused on tactics, but what they were not talking about is like, hey, we're in this together. You're not alone. Everyone who's trying to move a big mountain and a big company 
uh, goes through what you're going through. Let me help you out. Let me help you get unstuck. And um, I needed that. I needed to find my tribe. I needed to know other people who were like feeling obstructionism just like me. And when I left and became an entrepreneur again, you know, I wasn't going to like register for Y Combinator. I wasn't 24. You know, I was like, I had kids and a mortgage and a 401k and like the problems that I was aware of and excited about were kind of like, I didn't care about the hype cycle anymore. You know, I was like, I just saw. Yeah. Bigger problems. Just hundred billion dollar broken systems inside of Wall Street that no one on the inside can fix. Why am I going to waste my time on the blockchain? It, I get it. It's popular, yeah. but it's is it, it's is it screaming for yet someone else to like dive in? No, like that's not. I think the, there's this huge disparity between who a successful founder is and what the image of a successful founder is. Like the the most successful entrepreneurs on average are 46 years old. If you look at the largest fundraising rounds of 2023, the average age is 53 years old. If you take Sam Altman, who's 39, out of that mix, the average age jumps to 55. And we have been fed this image of this 27-year-old, 30 under 30, you know, it's not real. I mean, it's real, but it's not real. Like the 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 most successful founders be, do do exactly what I did. They spend twenty years working their ass off inside of a huge company. They see a problem that they can solve better, faster, smarter, and, and than the incumbents, and they leave to do so. Um, those are the most successful founders, and there's no community for them. There's no community specifically geared for like hey we're gonna help you get unstuck we're gonna tell you what it means to be a what fundraising options are available to you what does your sales process look like and how do you talk about this to your spouse you know that's the most important problem that we have how do you convince your parents that you're not insane for leaving a stable job on wall street i swear yeah. You know, how do you how do you have that high trust, intimate vulnerability that you just need in order to like be okay and, and not let the weight and the pressure of it kill you? Um, you know, and I, I found I found that that community's more easy to find when you're when you're like twenty-eight. Um I'm forty-six. Most founders are. Most successful founders are. Um, but you know, the like media demographic, that's the most desirable is 18 to 25, the founder demographic, that's the most successful is 46 and older. And so we've been fed the media demographic as being this most successful entrepreneur. It's not true. And one of the negative consequences of that myth is the most successful founders can't find one another, can't help each other out can't be a support network for each other. Um, so Punks and Pinstripes solves that. How many people do you have on the community now? We have 34. And we're very, so there's never going to be more than 200 members. And we only allow 25 new members to join per quarter. The, 
yeah, like what you're gonna do? You're just gonna kick them out? Like once you have like more applicants or something? Like no, there'll be a wait list. So once we have more applicants, yeah, no, no one gets kicked out. If you're here, <laughs> I hope you stay here. Um, uh, when someone applies and we accept them, and you have to get vetted by three members who want you to, who then give you a thumbs up to become a member. Um, and if there's attrition or a spot opens up, we'll we'll let the people on the wait list in. You have to pay money to be on the wait list. Like, okay, <clears throat> okay, that that's very interesting. Um, I want to ask you like one more question, and then you know we'll take on to the like some sort of a segment that we just had. Um, the, the the question that coming to my mind was around greater resignation, and I think you wrote an article that you know great resignation is becoming more of an entrepreneur exodus. In many ways, like question one that comes to my mind is like, why is that happening? Like, why is that great recognition thing is happening? Question two is, what do you think big course needs to do in order to retain that talent? Yeah, those are great questions. So um, one of the headlines is that the level of, of resignation, great resignation ended, you know, in 2023. As tech on a, as tech started to lay people off, yeah, um, that's not exactly true. It's not exactly true. So, in other words, the number of people who are quitting their jobs has has slowed down, has fallen back to its normal levels. That part is true. But when they left their jobs, they didn't go and then find a new job at another large corporation. So what we have is that since 2020, we had a doubling of the number. I'm talking about the United States. I should clarify that. Mm -hmm. There were twice as many people um, launched startups in 2020. That number has never stopped. So it has, like you would think that that would go back down as the great resignation mm -hmm. stopped. It has not. So, and when we start to look at companies like goldman sachs mm -hmm. like google the people who are leaving those companies are not leaving are, are, are becoming founders in many cases first-time founders and it's this fascinating totally under the radar mega trend of this like innovation talent diaspora and um so that that's it's is it the great resignation no it's not that anymore but is there like we did a, a really great analysis at Punks and Pinstripes of who on Wall Street is winning the war for AI talent, and what mm -hmm. we found is that for every I read that, so for every one AI person that the biggest Wall Street banks has hired, they have lost one. Um, so at the current rate of attrition for AI talent in finance, Goldman Sachs will have zero. AI people on staff by 2025 if it continues to lose as many AI people as it currently is. Can they correct that? Sure. Can they acquire some AI talent? Sure. But at, a, at its current rate, they will run out of AI people by 2025. Um, okay. So when these people are leaving, where do they go? Are they going from Goldman Sachs to Morgan Stanley? No. No, they're leaving finance altogether. Yeah. Um, that's one of the most. So the idea that like 
the great resignation is over only makes sense if you stop rolling, if you stop the camera as soon as someone quits yeah. their job. You should not stop mm-hmm. the camera, then you have to keep following them and ask them, after you resigned, what did you do next with your life? Starting a startup. It, it, starting a startup when VC numbers are contracting. Exactly, exactly like that. In, 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 a, in, a, in an environment that's not amenable to launching a startup. Yeah. Still Absolutely. doing it anyway. And um, that headline, I, I think that data is, is misunderstood. I'm trying to elevate it. Certainly, that's the biggest driver of uh, that entrepreneur exodus is the biggest driver of membership to punks and pinstripes. And I was part of that entrepreneur exodus. I get it. I was that guy. I know how hard it is. Um, so I, I, I feel like that's one of the most misunderstood megatrends of our time. It's also a very interesting point about that is open AI is the entrepreneur exodus. So the, there's 130 senior executives at open AI, all of them, mm-hmm. so 58 of them, including the founder, Sam Altman, are ex-Google. The, then from there, the remainder are Amazon, Apple, Microsoft. Yeah. So this image of like the guy like dropping out of Stanford or Harvard or MIT and being a startup founder, not anymore. That's an old, that, that was true for Mark Zuckerberg. That's not who the best, most dangerous founders of our time are. Um, they're people who did everything they could to go as fast as they could inside a corporate leadership, and then they left. And um, OpenAI is the most famous example of that. That's not something which was thought through in Stanford by some student. It was someone. It yeah. was something that someone tried to hatch inside of uh, inside of Google. Okay. All right. Um, thank you for that, Greg. Really appreciate that. So we have, um, so the most of the, so, so I'll, I'll give you some context, like why the hell, like we're doing this podcast. So when I, when I started a company, I had like no idea what exactly is a company. So like now I understand that. So I, I had a project and I thought, oh, okay, so this is a business. I was wrong in many ways. Um, I did not know like how to build a team, how to, you know, just getting incorporated doesn't mean that you build a company, you build a business, doesn't mean that. Most people still make the same mistake. Like most people, like mostly people are like first-time founders. Still, the media portrayed first-time founders, which is which is like what, like eighteen to twenty-five. That's the you know range when people start the business. So they they come across like all sorts of problems. Don't know who to hire. Don't know how to hire. Don't know how to raise fund. When to raise, like all sorts of problems. So that is when uh, we started this thing. Okay, so we will talk to all these successful people, people who have done something in their life. You know, so they have spent like 20 plus years, each one of them, and we learn from them and try to, you know, um, educate everybody as, as much as we can. So people at least not make as, so if, it, you know, one single person is, you know, um, I don't know if from this podcast, like one single person is successful, the goal is done. Um, so, so that is that. So one of the sections that we do is we run a, a poll through our community. So we have decent bit of a community. And we ask them, like, okay, so this is the person that we are inviting on the podcast. Any particular question comes to your mind, please shoot away. So there's, so there's like a, a lot of those questions, dozens of those, but we just pick five of them. So in no particular order, so I'm just, you know, uh, we'll share them with you. So question one is, why working at a corporate now is sort of looked down upon? Like why people don't like working in corporate now? 
I mean, I think they're making a mistake. Um, of not working to corporate. Okay. I think you should work in a corporate. I think the best founders come from corporate. Okay. It's very difficult, but... Yeah. It's not cool. Media cool. Because, you know, if you're like, you know, 22, you raised a million bucks with some, you know, hot shot idea, you know, you... So yeah, that that's cool, you know, because now you have more following and stuff like that. Who cares about success? I don't know. You think Jeff Bezos is cool? I don't think so. a lot of people would. So if, if you take out like what he has built, for example, if you just take out. The How can you take out something. what he's built? He built the biggest company no, in I the mean, world from scratch. Nate, um, the reason why I would say that is somebody would argue. So if you take it all that out, he doesn't fit that cool person persona, right? Sure. But he has. Yeah, yeah, that that's my point. Okay, sure. Um, Jeff Bezos worked at D.E. Shaw before he became the founder of Amazon. D.E. Shaw is one of the oldest, most established hedge funds in New York, or I don't know if it's in New York, but in the world. It's boring. It's a it's a corporation. Okay, it's a Wall Street fund. Yeah, that's D.E. Shaw. That's Jeff Bezos, one of the most successful founders on earth. Sam Altman, OpenAI, worked at Google. Um, so I think if what you're defining as cool, the image you're being fed on TikTok of how cool. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly of, like, of like some guy on a yacht in St. Bart's, you know. <laughs> yep. That's not real. And yeah. and a lot of those people have committed horrible fraud, like Sam Altman. Mm. Not Sam Altman. Uh, <laughs> Sa oh, uh, Sam Blankfine. Um, yeah, yeah. Um I I do think there's a lot to be taken out of a corporation if you're willing to put mm -hmm. the investment into it. Mm -hmm. If you're an innovator, if you're inherently wired to like build new stuff, you're going to be disappointed. That's okay. You're going to learn, like if you're just comfortable that it's not a permanent home, but you're going to learn a lot about how to be a more effective entrepreneur from the time that you are in a big company. Um, it will be the most valuable founder school you could ever go to. And you're going to get your ass kicked and it's going to be very painful and you're not necessarily going to like coming to work every day. Spending 10 years failing at a bunch of social media startups is pretty painful too. And so I think if you subscribe to the mythology of cool, um, A, I don't think that's cool, but B, <laughs> I think working in a big company and understanding what its limitations are is the best entrepreneur education you could get. Okay, great. Second one, would you ever consider starting another startup now that, uh, now that you're older? Sure. I mean, I am. Punks and Pinstripes is a startup. Yeah. Is it a venture-backed startup? Is it the same as InnoVest when I was 27? No. But the startup I'm building right now is... 100% the right startup. Yeah. No, I'm doing it. So the answer to that is 100% yes. It's not a, the startup I would have started when I was 24. Yep. That makes sense. <clears throat> Third that we have is uh, usually startups come with innovation with le less resources. So I, I think we already you know discussed that one. So the fourth is, how did you come up with the title? This might get me fired. So this is, I think, referring to your book. So did you actually get fired? Did you think about get you know, so, so like, what's the story behind that? That's a good one. I should have asked that at the beginning, yeah. Um, what I realized after 10 years working in finance after my startup got acquired, actually it wasn't quite 10 years, 
um, probably in year six, was um, every time I started to actually build something that made money, that gained traction, that started to do all the things that we in startups you'd call product market fit. Mm-hmm. Every time that started to really kick in and take effect, I also almost always got fired. It started this massive civil war and this awful political, like, how dare you? And after a while, I'm like, you know, I've come to sort of, and and I looked around me and at a certain point, I'm like, this is crazy. But like, if I look around at every innovative incubated new product that has come out of this company and every company the person who built it almost always got fired first they risked their career to build something they cared about yeah that's that's how innovation happens it always starts in that moment the thing that is you know google deep mind amazon web services yeah it's not something that like wow, these guys are geniuses. They must have been working on this and top secret. No, the person who started it nearly got killed trying to build it. You have to understand that every time. And that's often, and I'm like, all right, if you're going to write a book about innovation and it's written not by some outside observer from Harvard Business School who thinks they've done the research, but actually someone who's lived through it in the trenches, the best most appropriate title of how to innovate inside of a large company is this might get me fired because it almost always will. And if it hasn't, you haven't innovated a goddamn thing. (laughs) Okay. Love it. Um, Okay. So the next one is, so did, I I think the previous part of that question is like, assuming that you, you're into punk rock music, because I think that's pretty obvious. Give us your five top punk rock tracks of all time. Tracks or bands? tracks bands i think i think you could you could do the bands thing we can continue that no problem all right um at the atlantis by bad brains number one okay number two lust for life iggy pop love it okay number three the passenger also iggy pop iggy pop okay number four 53rd and third by the ramones number five oof man Okay, I'm not sure how high conviction this is, but I'm going to just put it out there. The Weight by The Pretenders. Okay. Off of their first album. Those are my top five. Okay, amazing. Okay, thank you for that. So what I do is like part of the the reason why I have all these conversations is because I consider myself a student, like a lifelong learner. So I ask like one single question for my personal learning. That's like very selfish thing to ask, but I do that. So uh, so one question that I want to ask you is, what's the most important business or leadership lesson that you have learned you wish you had known earlier in your entrepreneurial journey? If it, if it has to come down to just one that you think, God, I wish I knew that 20 years ago, what would that be? Uh, there's so many. Um, I'm just, I'm such a, a better founder now than I was. Um, can I give you three? Mm-hmm. <laughs> even even better, okay. So your success depends on what you say no to. You're going to be given advice and ideas and playbooks, rule books, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. by everybody. You're going to be bombarded by, and you, if you're an entrepreneur, tend to be, will probably be someone who's constantly thinking of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, your ability to say no to everything, even things you really, really, really want to do, and just focus on the two most important things. Uh, uh, that's that's what's going to make you succeed. You will be judged by what you say no to. Got it. And there's a and the discipline of doing that, and the discipline of disappointing others, and the discipline of seeing what's happening out there, and and being uh, not being seduced by it is extremely hard. Uh, number two, um, find a way to feel good about yourself and your life, even if the outcomes that you're pursuing are not met. Okay. That's self-explanatory in many ways. If you can't finish the day without having landed your big sale, without having landed your big investor, without having built your big breakthrough, something that is giving you existential fear because you know you have to do it, and it's keeping you up at night that you haven't been able to do it. If you can't finish that day where you didn't get to where you want to go and find a way to be grateful for what you have, proud of what you did, you know, the best you can do sometimes as an entrepreneur is just open the miracle window as far as you can. The miracle, you don't control when the miracle comes in. That's out of your control. But can you open the miracle window as far as you can? Can you finish every day, every day being like, I opened it as far as I can. Um, and if you can't do that, you won't be able to survive it. It's too much pressure. It's too much stress. Um, there's no such thing as not worrying about money. Never happens. Um, people who say that's happened to them are lying to you. It doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And you you have to be able to feel a sense of fulfillment and pride and joy in your life in, in the absence of all the things you want happening happening. You won't be you you can't survive this life if you can't figure that out. And there's another dangerous thing that happens, which is the anticlimactic victory. The people who don't invest in their happiness outside of their business get the things they want and are still miserable. Very miserable. Yep. I've had that happen too. Um, yeah, that's that's lesson number two. Um, lesson number three, don't do this alone. Um, if you can't find your tribe and build a community and invest in your community, um, you can't get through it. You won't be able to get unstuck. You won't be able to get to where you want to go. Um, one of the things that I have realized over time is that there is a gigantic difference between the advice you get from uh, a survivor and the advice that you get from a pundit. Someone who's been through what you are going through and come to the other side will offer you advice only because they want you to be okay. Yeah, that's it. They want you They're to- not telling anything. They, they have no ulterior motive except mm. they want you to be okay and to do well because they want you to win. Period. End of discussion. The only thing- underpinning that and there are so many coaches and false prophets and people who are trying to separate you from their money and turning themselves into these demagogues putting images out on social media which is like want to know how perfect i've become guess what you can be perfect too 
and it's and they sell it very well. Most of them haven't been through it. Most of them haven't had to survive what you're going through. And if if you cannot, you have to surround yourself with a community of survivors where there is just zero ulterior motive. That's literally the return on investment from punks and pinstripes. That's the reason this community works. It's people who otherwise would be forced having to go to executive coaches, pundits, thought leaders, none of whom have had to go through the thing that they're doing, none of whom have built the thing that they're building. And instead, they get to turn to one another, people who are in it, who are uh, who can feel their pain, who can talk to them and be like, man, I've been where you are. And trust me, it gets better. There were three things that worked for me. Here's what they were. I hope it works for you. And 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 the advice that and, and the, here's the playbook of things that you just everyone's going to tell you to do this. They're all full of shit. Anyone who says this to you is lying. And man, if that's the if you have someone like that and you can send a text message to them at three in the morning when you're staring at the ceiling, you're going to be okay. You're gonna you're gonna be a really successful founder. You're gonna be uh, you're gonna have a, a a more fulfilling life. You know, and that's, that's, I think the most thrilling part of like, I get paid to do that. I get paid to create that for people. It's, it's kind of a, it's, it's an immense privilege for me. Oh, it took you so long to, to build that. So it's just not like you build it like overnight or something. You've been through that for like 20 years, 25 years. You find the tribe. Now you're building it. So it's just not like, oh yeah, okay, let's just create a community out of thin air. By the time I'm 21, no, it doesn't happen like that, right? I think I undervalued how important it was when I was 21. Maybe. You know, I think at a certain point, I got to, in fact, it was a very vivid point. Like after I I, I left Bloomberg, I, I, you know, I took a day and I sat down with a giant piece of paper and I put like all the things that I really was successful at on one side of the page and all the things that were failures on the other side of the page. And then I just, I remember specifically, like, who was I working with? How much money did I have? Um, you know, what was the technology I used? And what was fascinating about that was that the things that were really successful, the one common denominator was people. Who my mentors were, who my team was, who my bosses were. Everything else was equal. I had the same technology and the successes and the failures. I had AI in the success column and the failure column. You know, there were successes that used very little money and, and failures that had used hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, the only common denominator was people and community. Um, you have to succeed and fail a whole lot to know that. You know, it, yeah. it took me a long time to just realize like, wow, I, I never took the time to do this exercise, but now that I've done it, there's a really clear pattern. I'm glad I know that now. I hope some of your listeners can hear, no, learn, learn from, think it's from me realizing that at the age of 40 and figure it out a lot earlier for themselves. Hopefully. Um, okay, Greg, so we have this uh, tradition on the podcast. So what we do is we ask all our guests a question for our next guest without telling them who the next guest is going to be without knowing who the next guest is going to be. So, uh, so we have a question for you that the previous guest left. And then we're obviously going to take a question for our next guest. So, so yeah. Um, so the question that he left for you is, so first-time founders are usually burned out, like most of them, because of this extreme hustle culture, like they need to be working 18 hours a day over the weekend, all, all of that crap. 
How can they maintain a work-life balance? How can they maintain a work-life balance? So it's really hard, but it's a lot easier when you have kids. <laughs> because that's a, that's a shitty piece of advice. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I have two kids, uh, and I had my son, who's now about to turn 16. I had him when I was 30, and then, uh, so that would be two years before InnoVest was sold, my first ever startup. Okay. I couldn't work late after he was born. You know, like... I swear. <laughs> I had to... And by the way, <laughs> when he was born, I was... Um, I wasn't just working at a startup. I was responsible for analyzing banks in the middle of the 2008 financial crisis. And I was the person that predicted Lehman Brothers was going to collapse. Yeah. I had that question, but we were just like running out of time. So I was like, okay, maybe some other day. I had that written out. Like, how, how did you predict that? So I've always been obsessed with weird data. I continue to be obsessed with weird data. And one of the data points that I looked at was, were all the people who were suddenly able to afford mortgages, were their savings going up? Like, were their incomes going up? Like, how is this happening? Is this sustainable like what's going to happen if they don't if they can't afford it yeah and what i found was a, a very simple chart and if you go back i'll send it to you it's kind of cool uh but that between 2000 and 2006 when i wrote that first report um a very interesting uncoupling had happened which is that historically prior to 2000 Real wages and household savings rates in the United States used to kind of go up and down in conjunction with each other. Mm -hmm. From 2000 to 2006, real wages declined by 2%. Household credit rates, the amount of that households were borrowing, had gone up 72%. Wow. Um, so the question for me at that point was who's issuing the most? mortgages to these households is there any data that can enable us to get a, a sense a glimmer of of, of understanding mm -hmm. of who's the most exposed and the answer was bear stearns lehman brothers and countrywide financial that's it that's literally as simple as it was there is a lot what, what doesn't what what you don't see inside of that very clean answer um was just how different that was than how banks are normally analyzed. Um, mm -hmm. It was a total deviation from normal. Um, you also don't see just how many mistakes we made, how much bad data we had, how much unreliable mm -hmm. data we had, how much data was just impossible to, to, to extract. No one, no one sees that. Um, so it took a, it was a very hard, piece of analysis to come up with but it just gets presented in this like tiny single yeah cute very clear very simply written a, a, a 12th a 12th grade an 11th a 12 year old could have read that and, and and understood why we were making the prediction we made the amount of work hours weekends Oh, unbelievable. Very bad work-life balance that went into getting yeah. to something that small and clean about something so big. Uh, not for the faint of heart. Very hard. Mm -hmm. So I have to say one other thing. 
the person who was my research um, assistant when I was doing that was a woman who was who was an intern. She started as an intern. Her name was Laura Nishikawa, and she's now the head of ESG at MSCI. And um, I just I want to like give a shout out because I think that's another huge. Every chance I could get to put Laura on stage instead of me, I did. You know, every time CNBC wanted to interview me, I'm like, you know, why don't you speak to Laura? Not because I didn't feel comfortable in front of the camera, but it was so important for me that she gets got, got recognition. And I cannot overstate how important it is for founders to share the wins and share the success with the people who give them their loyalty, who, who give them their fit, who subscribe to the vision. Um, mm-hmm. If you can't turn them into rock stars, do everything you can to, to make the world aware of it. Um, hey, you're going to have a lot of entrepreneur exodus on your hands and, and um, be, you know, that, that was, um, that was almost that was 16 years ago you know watching her become one of the most like successful women in finance it's like one of the great joys of my life now just standing on the sidelines and seeing like man i was there at the very beginning it's like if you cannot experience that joy you're depriving yourself of one of the great benefits of a strong entrepreneur karma bank account Okay. So thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. Uh, love talking to you. So many different takes, so many insights. So appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Thanks for this here. Take care.